morning, everyone. Glad to be with you as we can worship together this morning, both here in the sanctuary and also online. Let's take a moment and we'll pray together and then we'll look at the scripture that we've just heard read. Father, <clears throat> we'd like to thank you that we have the privilege of gathering here within these walls, listening for your voice, and as we enter into this week, which is uh, for all of us in different contexts festive, I pray as well that at a level deeper than festivity and uh, celebration and, and getting together with family, that your spirit would shape us, Father, uh, for behind the festivity there is an event in history, and that event is intended to transform our lives. Uh, may you teach us regarding that transformation, even this morning, Father, not only teaching us through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, but giving us responsive hearts as well. We'll thank you as we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I've been away for a few weeks. A lot has happened in those weeks that I've been gone. In the news, a lot has happened. It's great to be back together, but it has been uh, an amazing time and continues to be an amazing and uh, uh, disruptive time in history since we were last together, Colorado Springs, San Bernardino, I was in Austria walking uh, to the west, and uh, I'm, as I'm looking at people coming this way, everyone is looking at the sky as if it's Superman in the sky. And when I turned around and looked, uh, a dozen fighter jets crisscrossing the sky, uh, circling, and uh, come to find out that had to do with uh, a terror threat in Geneva. New passport controls, even within the U EU, making it harder to travel from country to country, Donald Trump on the rise, Liberty University's president encouraging students at Christian schools to get their conceal and carry permit. But I think the bigger news in the midst of all that news <clears throat> is that that news is creating uh, uh, great debates and polarity among people of faith. In other words, we're moving to dramatically different conclusions regarding how to respond to the events of the day. And two conversations in Europe seem to illustrate this to me. I'm talking, <clears throat> excuse me, to one German friend who says regarding the immigration crisis in Europe, Angela, Angela Merkel is a smart woman, generous and a savvy politician. Germany is importing top talent from the Middle East and this will give us uh, a brain trust and uh, because we have a zero birth rate in Europe, this will solve our population decline and actually serve to boost the German economy and that the whole world thinks that we're generous in the meantime is just a bonus. It's a great thing. I'm glad we're doing what we're doing. This person's a Christian. And then another person I talked to, also uh, a Christ follower, says, hey, listen, there are many more men than women coming in to Europe and they're going to marry... European women, and then those families won't be raised with our values, and because of their birth rate versus the birth rate of native-born people in Northern Europe, it won't be long until we have lost all of our cultural moorings. This is the biggest threat to Europe uh, that we've ever faced in our lifetime, and I'm already mourning the loss of my culture. Two views, both Christ followers, right? Now, uh, I don't know if you know it, but there's polarity in America, too. <laughs> among Christ followers regarding political issues. Who knew? And so this morning, it is not my intent at all, preemptive warning, to tell you how to vote or to talk about candidates or even politics or even current events anymore. 
It is my intent, though, to help us fly above all this noise and ask a question. And the question is, look, what does it mean to be a Christ follower in this moment right now? A moment of really, in many, in many ways, a moment of fear. Like, how do, how do we follow Jesus right now and right here? And that's the, that's the conversation this morning in Philippians 2. And the conversation begins because of some words used by theologians that aren't in the Bible. They're good words, they're true words, but they're limiting words. And they're words to describe what Christ has done for us. And at Christmas, of course, we celebrate the coming of Christ. But as we've just heard read, Christ came for a reason. He came not just to live, but to die. And so there's a word regarding the atonement, and atonement means, in a way, loosely, if you're theological, bear with me here, but loosely, atonement has to do with what is the meaning of salvation, right? And many people use this adjective to describe the word atonement or salvation, substitutionary atonement. In other words, substitutionary implies at the very least, if it doesn't actually mean, Christ died instead of us, right? The picture you get is that of a secret service agent kind of jumping in front of the president as the shot is fired to take the bullet so that the agent dies instead of the president. It's substitutionary. And what that means for us this morning is that Christ changed status, right? He became human and essentially laid down his life. And he said, look, I lay down my life. No one takes it from me. I lay down my life. He laid down his life willingly so that we'd be spared. <laughs> he moved from highest to lowest. And I'm writing this uh, while I'm on a plane from Munich to Atlanta on Tuesday. And so I just wrote in, my, in notes, parentheses here, it's like moving... It's like moving from first class to coach so that some random person can get an upgrade, right? How cool would that be to see somebody from first class kind of coming back through the aisles and seeing, you know, somebody sitting alone, unhappy in a middle seat between two large people <laughs> saying, hey, today you take it. I'll sit where you're sitting. I mean, that's a beautiful story. And in, a sense, in essence, in, a, in, a, in an infinitely magnified fashion, this is Christ, right? He died so we don't have to. All true, all worth celebrating, all good, but, and very important, not the end of the story, just the beginning of the story. In other words, let me frame this for you. Christ didn't do all that so that you could get your ticket punched and say, good, now I'm going to heaven. He did all that so that now you could live the exact same lifestyle self-emptying. That's why he did it to empower, he emptied himself so that you could also empty yourself because, hello, that's the life for which you're created, right? So uh, this is not what the word substitute implies at all. And that word actually isn't in the Bible, but theologians use it. Substitute seems to imply, oh, no, no, Jesus took coach so that I could spend the rest of my life flying in first class. He suffered so I don't have to. Uh, he died so I don't have to. You know, he took the stripes so that I don't have to. And, and look, that's good news, but if that's where it ends, that's not the gospel. Do you understand? I mean, after all, we tend to embrace that first half readily and stop there. I'm in first class now. I'm like, who do you ever see giving up first class tickets? There's always an upgrade chart when you're in the airport, right? <laughs> Like moving from coach to first class and there's a waiting list, always a waiting list of people who are willing to lay down a few extra bucks or a few saved up miles so they get to fly with free food and whatever. 
It's always there, a waiting list. I've never seen like a waiting list for downgrades at the airport. How hysterical would that be? Downgrade list. I mean, we've got too many people, you know, wanting to leave first class so that others could go in. Why? Why is there no downgrade list? Because nobody does that. That's why. Nobody. And yet Philippians 2 says, well, if you're going to live the way you are created to live, you have to follow Christ in the movements that Christ made in his life because Christ's movements were not intended to be substitutionary, but exemplary. <laughs> he didn't do it so you don't have to. He, he did it to show you the way and ultimately to empower you to live exactly his life. So what does that mean? Well, three movements. And, 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 and we'll see them here in just a moment. Emptying becomes incarnation. That's the first movement. Incarnation becomes obedience. And then there's a third movement as well we'll see at the end. So this is a letter written to the Philippians. And the, and the church in Philippi is a good church. Largely a healthy church. As you saw the video about the healthy, you know, what is a healthy church? It's, a, it's largely a healthy church, but no church is perfect, of course. And one of the threats that they face then, that we face now, is increasing polarity within the community. In other words, there were people who were not getting along for some reason. We don't know the reasons, but we do know that there's, uh, you know, Paul says, now I urge you two people, representative of factions actually, I urge you, stop bickering and get on with the unity to which you're called, right? So, so that's a backdrop, one of the reasons that Paul wrote the letter. And, and, and so in that context, Paul says, beginning in chapter 2, verse 3, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ. So in other words, here, Christ, is, Christ didn't do this stuff so you don't have to. Christ did it as an example. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ. Three movements. Emptying becomes incarnation. Incarnation becomes obedience. And then third movement later. Okay? We start with emptying becomes incarnation. And so this is what we see in the text, right? And if you have your Bible, you turn to Philippians 2. It says this, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. With humility, regard one another as more important. Uh, don't look out for your own personal interests, but also for those of others. And it's all well and good. It's like, um, that's the kind of stuff you see on motivational charts, you know, or posters. You know, all for one and, you know, service. It's all good. But what does it actually mean? And so when we get to, the, like, to unpack it, Paul unpacks it beautifully, beginning in verse 5, when he says this, your attitude should be the same as the attitude of Christ. And he moved in three ways, and here's the first movement. Have this out in yourselves, verse 5, which was in Christ, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And so here's the thing. We start here, emptying him's incarnation. He emptied himself, taking on uh, the form of a bondservant, being, being made in the likeness of men. So here we go. Emptying becomes incarnation. Christ moved. How did he move? Well, he, it says he emptied himself. And wait, here's what's interesting. This is one of the great debates in theological history is what this text means when it says that Jesus emptied himself because there's this Greek word kenosis, which means emptying. And here's the deal. The problem that we face is that Jesus is fully God, right? And fully what? Human. We say it, we believe it, we teach it. And, and, and so, uh, pardon me for getting, you know, esoterically theological here for just a minute, 
But the, but the challenge is, the theologians go, look, if he's fully God when he's here on earth and he's fully man also, like in what sense did he empty himself of anything? And so then some say, oh, well, you know, he wasn't really actually God. He was just this kind of superstar human. And so they, they minimize his deity. And others uh, uh, minimize his humanity and say, oh, no, no, he actually was God. He just looked like a man. And so the emptying is really poetic. And so there's a debate about the word kenosis, and it leads to these different theories about the humanity and the deity of Christ and Nestorianism and kenosis and self-emptying and here's my brain, blah, 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 right? Like, who actually cares? And I, and I don't mean to minimize it. It's important, but it's only important to an extent, and when it becomes myopically important, we miss the larger point. I sometimes think theologians would go to a baseball game and then write articles and have conferences about why the bases are white. You know, what does white mean? And is it, you know, sin-free or is like, and what does sliding signify? Like, who cares? It's not the point. And so at a level, don't miss the big point by arguing about kenosis. And few of you will in the room, but we on staff will miss the point. That'd be tragic. Because here's the big point. Christ did not regard, and this wedding ring represents all of the power of God. Christ did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, right? It was his identity. It was his inheritance. It was his by right. But he didn't regard a thing to be grasped. He what? Emptied himself. It's mine, but no. Take it. That's what he did. And, and, and in order for him to empty himself, he had to move from heaven to earth, right? And, and uh, from life to death, from eternal union with the Father to my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's quite a movement, actually. And so that, of course, meant for Jesus becoming human and all that entails, sweat, blood, hunger, sunrises, laughter, sexual temptations, denominational wars within his religion. It was there then. Going to parties. It's all there. So when we go where God sends us by way of emptying, <laughs> invariably we will be asked to cross boundaries. And when we cross boundaries and go into unfamiliar territory, there's, there's something that works in, in God's divine plan that moving across boundaries against our own will empowers us to be people uniquely of blessing. This is missions. This is missional living. I, oh, come on. Let the natives do it. Hey, watch this. When you cross social boundaries, you uniquely become a blessing to people with whom you are present. It happens every time. And so, church history is filled with people crossing boundaries. It's funny, uh, someone recently said to me, man, I have a hard time reading the Bible because the Bible's written to the oppressed and we're not the oppressed. We kind of represent, you know, as wealthy Americans, we represent the empire. And this was my response to this person. I said, you know what? 
never mind that debate, whether we're the empire or the oppressed, but here's, a, here's another point. The whole Bible is not written to the oppressed. There are lots of places in the Bible that are written to people who have a little bit of wealth and power. And in fact, this is one of those places. Uh, the Philippian church is, is you know, pretty educated. There's some wealthy people there. And so this is a letter written to people who have some wealth, some power. And in this setting, here's what Paul is saying. Look, what God is, whatever it is that God has given you, watch this, don't cling to these things. Why? Because Jesus didn't. So have this attitude in you, which was in Christ, which although he had it, what did he do? Nope, not mine anymore. That's Jesus. And that is to be our attitude. And watch this. When that's our attitude, movement will occur. God will, God will push us to cross boundaries beyond our comfort zone. That's why my friend McGregor Magruder from Houston, though it doesn't sound like Houston, right? Uh, you know, business degree, full capacity to make plenty of money here in the States is living in Nairobi, Kenya. Why? Crossing boundaries in obedience to God from our own congregation. John and Lacey Fang in Thailand. Scott and Heather Sund, they sell their fishing lodge up in BC and, and, they, and they come down here and run because Scott's called to ministry. Now he's pastoring our North Seattle campus. People are moving. That's why people volunteer in shelters. It's movement. That's why people serve community meals. It's movement. That's why people join groups. Sometimes for introverts, that's why people go to parties. It's movement, right? God is calling us into life. That's why people move into relationships, because when we move out of obedience to Christ, watch this, Christ becomes present to the people where God sends us every time. It's marvelous. And this is all through the Bible, this element of self-emptying that results in movement. And though it's all through the Bible, I mean, one of the classic places where you see it is the, is the character Moses, right? Moses moves. How does he move? Well, you know, he was in Egypt and then tried to you know, exact a bit of a coup. It was a colossal failure. He runs. He's 40 years out from that attempt to deliver Israel. He's living in the wilderness. He's married. He has kids. He has sheep. He has, his sun rises. He has isolation. He's perfectly, 100% happy. We know it from the text. And he's out with his flock one day, and I can just picture him sitting on a rock, watching the sunrise, you know, drinking some sort of Mediterranean tea, going, life is good, and then, Boom! God speaks, right? There's this bush that lights on fire. Oh! And then, you know, pretty soon, here's what happens. God is saying, hey, you know, I got a wonderful plan for your life. Back to Egypt for you. You know, and, and confront the guy who tried to kill you. And I'll perform, don't worry, I'll perform all these miracles. We, you know, frogs swarming over the land. It's going to be amazing. But, uh, you know, in the end... You're going to lead the people out, you know, through the wilderness. 40 years, they'll hate you every step of the way. That's your calling, right? And you, you remember what Moses said? Yeah, of course. No. Here's Moses. Watch this. I don't want to go. I mean, he doesn't start that way. He's passive aggressive in the beginning, like all of us would be too. He goes, oh, you know, God, you got the wrong guy, you know. Here's why, I have any credibility and, and I don't speak well and I'm not educated enough and you know, God answers every question and at the end, every question answered and Moses says, yeah, well, here's the deal, send him, I don't wanna go. Well, at least we're honest now, right? Why, why do I wanna go? Here's why, boom, my hand is full right now, I'm happy. No, I don't wanna go. 
Have anybody been there? Yeah. And some of you are here in this rain, this endless rain. Some of you are here from California because of calling. I know, I see some of you. I see some of you right here. Because of calling. And it's December. It's dark at three o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> and you're like this, why? like why? Why am I here? What am I doing here? Calling, right? Yeah, yeah, oh, here's the thing. Emptying becomes incarnation. And watch this, incarnation requires movement. And so if you're gonna live your life this way, I'm not moving. I'm afraid of moving into new relationships. I'm afraid of crossing social divides. I'm, I'm like, I'm, look, I don't wanna to talk to those people who are different than me. I'm afraid of changing jobs. I'm afraid of changing geography. I'm afraid of changing houses. Look, if you're gonna never move, you will miss the life for which you're created because movement is inherent in the gospel. So there's change of verse among us, and that actually at different levels is all of us at various times. We gotta get over that because uh, God blesses us, and then this is what God does, often. Okay, right? Talk, let go. And you do or you don't, but if you don't, you miss something vast. Emptying becomes incarnation. Second, incarnation becomes obedience. Because what does it say in the text? It says, look, uh, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a bond servant. Now, this is an interesting phrase. What's a bondservant? Well, in the Bible, you've got uh, servants and slaves, and then there's kind of middle ground, the bondservant. Who's a, what's a bondservant? Well, a bondservant, it's, it's an interesting concept here. The bondservant is someone uh, who, is, who willingly becomes the permanent, in a sense, slave of, a, of his master, Okay. So if, we, if you picture, Exodus 21.6, if you're ever curious to read about this, God's vision of slavery in the Old Testament was, uh, had an element of generous justice in it that was uncharacteristic of anything else in any Mesopotamian culture. We sometimes get hung up because we go, oh, look, you know, God is sanctioning slavery here. Well, I get it. And also true, uh, after six years, you have to let your slaves go and sent away with means to establish a life. And that's Exodus 21. And so, at the end of six years, I've served you, but at the end of six years, I'm free to go. And now I can, I can start my own life. But here's the thing. What if I like my life with you? What if you are such a good master, because you're wise, and you're wealthy, and you're benevolent, and you have my best interest at heart, and over six years, I've come to know that I could never be more fulfilled or satisfied or aligned with the life for which I'm created to live. If I could never be better on my own than I could be with you, what if I want to stay? That's Exodus 21.6. It says there, look, if you want to stay and, and subject yourself permanently to the will of another, if you want to do that, then you go to him, the master, and you say, I want to be your servant Watch this, forever, and then the master takes his ear and he pierces his ear. And so, you know, parentheses here, that we argue about piercings among fundamentalists is amazing to me because this is like a beautiful sign of obedience. What's the sign of obedience? Boom, your ear right there, big hole. That means you, listen, and I use this word intentionally, you're owned by that one. Now, in, I'll tell you what, in the land of the free, oh, baby, I can already hear the like, emotional alarm going off in your mind. 
ownership, warning, no. No one tell me what to do with my stuff, right? <laughs> I'm free. Huh. Yeah, I get it. Because watch this, that kind of living is costly. But here's the deal. Never mind what you think for a moment. Here's a declaration. Christ became a bond servant. Christ did. Oh, well then who was the master? God, the Father. The relationship changed from, in a sense, equals to the bond servant. Christ is a bond servant of the Father. How do I know that? Well, I do a word search of this phrase, not my own. And watch what happens in the Gospel of John. It just pops up over and over again. Here's Jesus. My time is not my own. John 7, 6. My teaching is not my own. John 7, 16. My will is not my own. John 6, 38. My judgment is not my own. Uh, John 8, 16. My works are not my own. My life is not my own. Everything that I am, I am because I'm an empty vessel to be filled with the will and authority and time and strength and life of God. It's not my life, it's His. That's Jesus. And it's not substitutionary. He didn't do that so that you don't have to. He was paving the way. <laughs> so that in Jesus' life, none of it is His own. In other words, there's only one right answer when God the Father speaks to Jesus and the answer is yes. Whatever it is your will, that's what I will do. That's what it means to be a bondservant. It's costly because it means that Jesus now, who only knew equality with the Father, is now in a constant state of subjugation and submission, but born out of love and devotion and yet nevertheless, though it's born out of love, it's still submission. Does this make sense to you? Super powerful and important. What Jesus thought about a matter or what Jesus wanted wasn't in the end important, ever. As evidenced in the garden when Jesus said, hey, if there's any other way, God the Father, let this cup of death and betrayal and dying abandoned, let it pass from me. Nevertheless, in the end, what? Not my will, but yours. That's subsugation. That's emptying oneself. That's becoming a bondservant. And it's not intended to be substitutionary, but exemplary. We know that because Jesus then says, after rising from the dead, as the Father sent me, now I'm sending you. I want you to live in the same way in relation to me, Christ, in the manner in which I, Christ, lived in relation to the Father. So that even as I lived in relation to the Father as an empty vessel, so that God the Father could fill my life with his will, his authority, his power, his joy, his wisdom, his generosity, his servanthood, I'm asking you now to live as Christ's followers in relation to me in exactly the same way. You are now bond servants of Christ, period. And that means when Jesus asks something of you, hear me, there's one right answer, yes. Because that's what it means to follow the example of Christ. It's great to sing about Jesus becoming human and vulnerable and a servant, but he did this because moving from autonomy to obedient servanthood is the life for which we're created. But who thinks that way? Oh, yeah, 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 servanthood. In some aspirational fashion, no one. Look at Israel in the wilderness. They're told to go into the new land. What do they do? They don't go. They're told to not go into the new land. What do they do? They go into the new land. They're told to not eat manna on a particular day Saturday. What do they do? They go out to get manna. They're told to go get manna. What do they do? They don't go get manna. They're told they don't need a king. What do they do? Oh, we got to have a king. 
And we look and we laugh. But the danger in our laughter is, is the laughter is like an insulation from, in many of us, particularly singular areas where our, our fist is closed. Oh, yeah, yeah, my life is his, except for ge ge geography, except for vocation, except for sexuality. Yeah, it's all his. It's, it's all his. Shh, don't tell anybody. Keeping this. It's not subjugation. It's in us to resist authority. Why? It's in us. We're in Adam's family. And Adam's good at resisting authority. Any tree in the garden, except one. I've got to have the one. That's Adam. And so it's us in a sense. <laughs> this is where faith breaks down. Because in our, in our, it's in our nature to view yielding my will to the will of another as, as not a good thing. Right? Just like nobody downgrades from first class to coach, nobody, in our culture at least, says, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? Oh, I know, a servant. Yeah, I just want to give up my rights. Let someone else control my life utterly. That would be awesome. You ever hear that in a yearbook? <laughs> no. And I get it. The, you know, master's a bad word in our culture. And we have a track record of abuse, of course. But what, listen, what if my master loves me infinitely and desires nothing more than to see me live the life for which I was created? What then? Is that master worth trusting? Now, can I open my hand? I hope so, because that's exactly what we're talking about here. Christ is your master. <laughs> And so when Jesus says, John 10, 10, I've come to you, man, I have life, it's because he loves us infinitely and knows exactly the life for which we are created. And the only way we will ever enter into that life is if we're willing to empty ourselves completely and say over and over and over again, not my will, but yours. In big ways, okay, don't want to move to the city, but not my will, but yours, I'm going 20 years ago. And in little ways, okay, a party. Don't want to go. Not my will. Or tithing. Okay. Really, 10%? We go back to the Bible and we look. Really? Not my will. Hospitality. Sexuality. Why? Because we believe that Christ's will is, will shape us to be the people we're created to be. That's the thing. And if you're married in the room, by the way, marriage is intended to actually illustrate this working both ways. The husband's saying, regard his relationship with his own wife, not my will. I'm, I'm subjugating myself to your desires to see you thrive. <laughs> and the wife is doing the same thing back. And if you have questions about how that works, we have a marvelous marriage guy on staff, Phil Malding, he's in the front row right there, talk to him because he knows answers. It's important. We have a chance to make it visible. So movement, and the third movement is this, obedience becomes death, and then, because it becomes death, it becomes life for the ages. It says this, he humbled himself uh, to the point of death, even death on a cross, right? Interesting phrase on two counts. First, regarding the Greek word humility, because the word is never used in a positive light anywhere in classical Greek, ever. It's never... 
held up as exemplary to be humble. And second, this word is never used in the active voice. In other words, nobody humbles themselves. And so first, that the word is used positively is amazing. Second, that Jesus isn't humbled because he wasn't strong enough to win, but he humbled himself. He emptied himself. Those are exemplary for us. Those are degrees of letting go. And when you see people who in, in real life, right, uh, they, have, they have authority and then they let it go even in tiny ways. When you see it in tiny ways, it's beautiful. I'm in the line in Costco on Friday and I have two items. And the lady in front of me has like four shopping carts, right? And I go, you know, okay, whatever. It, by rights, she's in front of me. And so for her to come to me and say, hey, you only have two, come on. Don't you? I mean, it's beautiful. You want to sing, joy to the world. Like, this is a sign of the gospel, right? Or you're not fighting in traffic. Or, you, or there's, like, there, you're at the party, there's two pieces of pie left on the tray, and you're, there's you and your wife standing there. One piece is huge, one piece is tiny. And then, and then who does this? Oh, no, dear, you choose first. Don't you love that? Do you, does it ever happen? When it does, it's the gospel, do you see? In big and small ways, in big and small ways, self-emptying is beautiful. But let's acknowledge this is not the world we live in. I'll let you choose pie, but I'm keeping my seats on the 50-yard line. I'm not going up there in the third level, in the end zone, to anyone and say, hey, let's trade. No, no. I'm keeping my job. When I'm offered a promotion, it's mine. No one goes, no, look, let my coworker take it. He needs it more than I do. Hmm. And, and then along comes Jesus, and he moves off the ground of earning and protecting to emptying. And emptying completely. Obeying the point of death, even death on a cross, his friends deserted him. He died without having enough money for a grave. And here's the punchline. Therefore, because he emptied completely, watch this, if this is baseline, because he emptied completely, exalted completely, lower than anyone, higher than anyone, and therein lies the principle. Look, if you live a self-protective life and you're like this, okay, I'll, I'll empty myself three inches, then your exaltation and, and, and your capacity to live into the life for which you're created, three inches. A foot, a foot. Completely, completely. Does this make sense? This is the gospel. So look, if you want to live a meaningful Christmas uh, this year, don't give a sweater just only. Like, empty your hands and give Jesus a gift. And what is that gift? Your whole being, body, soul, and spirit. My time is not my own. My money is not my own. My sexuality is not my own. My politics are not my own. My fear is not my own. None of it's mine. I'm not going to build a wall. I'm going to say eternally to Jesus, yes. When that happens, you experience life for the ages. Dietrich Bonhoeffer could have stayed in America. He went back to Germany. Why? Self-emptying, 1939 to go back. It cost him his life. Elizabeth Elliot, her husband is killed among the Aka Indians in the 50s. He goes back, she goes back um, with a small child to minister among the very people who killed her husband. Why? Self-emptying. Martin Luther King, in jail, out, and still identifying in solidarity with a movement for liberation. Back in jail, back out, 
identifying. Back in, death threats, bombs at his house. He kept going. Why? Self-emptying. Not my will, his. You want to live a life that's rich? (laughs) Say yes utterly. That's Christmas. It's the life for which we're made. I'm sitting on a plane, and and as I'm writing the sermon, I become friends with the seed mate, right? And get this, Jan, very German name, Jan from Houston. Do you love that? And his parents have a house in Austria, and so he flies back and forth. And I said to him, you know, he asked me what I was preaching on on Sunday. I go, it's this text about emptying. And I think Jan is listening, actually, right now from Atlanta. And I said, I've never seen anyone give up quality seats on the airplane to fly and coach. He said, I did. And he shared his story. Five, five seats. He gets a call. He's a frequent flyer. gets a call to the front. Mr. whatever your name is, we have five seats for you. It's for you and your wife, your nine-year-old twins and your other child. Business class, all the way to Europe. It's a nine-hour flight. Here's Jan. Now, let somebody else enjoy him. What? And I just, I'd just written, nobody gives up <laughs> seats. And then Jan is like, no, I did. I said, why? He said, oh, a couple things. I mean, I don't want my nine-year-old flying first class that young in life. That's a bad, <laughs> sets a bad example, right? And then how about we learn, watch this, how about we learn a little, thing, a little something about generosity? How about we learn a little something about generosity? I mean, do you understand here what we're saying? This is the gospel. Emptying, giving away. That's why people love Dickens and Scrooge. Lavish generosity. Anthony Bloom has written a favorite book of mine entitled Beginning to Pray. And he tells a story in there of uh, the Bolshevik Revolution and a woman whose husband has already been killed and she's in a house with her, with her child and her neighbor comes over and he says, look, the army's coming and though your husband is dead, when they come to their house, they will execute you. Uh, so I want you to do this for me. Uh, they know where you live and where, because of your husband, they know. Uh, look, go stay at my house and I'll be here when they come. They're on the edge of town right now. You have 10 minutes. She says, yeah, they come. She says, "Uh, they come, they'll kill you. And this is the woman. I know. I understand. I don't have a child. (laughs) You do. It's okay. My life's in God's hands. Hey, you know what? That's Christmas. What's in your hand? Let go. Amen? Father, thanks for letting go of everything. It really is unfathomable at a level. And that you've asked us to let go of everything is beyond difficult. And yet I believe even in this moment as we sing here right now, that you're not asking us to let go of everything but some particular thing, each of us, related to letting go of our fear or our bitterness or our stuff or our geographical demands or our sexual ethic and autonomy. And so as you speak to each of us, give us the grace to let go as a gift to you.
because you've given everything to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I hope that uh, if God is speaking to you about something that you're going to let go of, you'll come up and just write a little prayer as a gift to our Lord. Uh, yes, thank you, Father. I'm letting go of my fear today. I'm letting go of my bitterness today. I'm letting go of my sexual autonomy today. This is how God speaks to us. Let's worship together as we continue.